Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Rothko Chapel. A couple of uh, housekeeping items we'd ask you, because you're in a sacred space, we're here to enjoy each other's company and fellowship tonight. We'd ask if you turn off your cell phones or put them on mute and no pictures, please. The second thing is after the program, we'll have a reception on the plaza and we're really fortunate to have River Oaks Bookstore with us that have works by our various uh, authors, poets tonight. We'll also have a book signing, so I hope you'll uh, take advantage of their offering and also being uh, some fellowship, and we'll continue the conversation out on the plaza after the readings. A little bit about the concept of the Divine Series. We launched the series in September to provide an opportunity for us to probe more deeply into our diverse individual and collective understandings of and engagement with the divine, however you understand the divine, and our notion of self, the sacred, and our deepest life commitments. Part of the questions that frame this series um, are such that like, what is your understanding of the divine and how has that changed over your lifetime? What impact has your engagement with the divine, however understood, had on your vocational commitments and views about your place in the cosmos? And what does this engagement, how does it take place? Is it through prayer, music, silence, social action, the spoken written word? These are all questions that we posed uh, to ourselves and to our speakers as part of the series. And tonight, it's our great pleasure to welcome uh, Willis, Aliki and Tony Barnstone to be part of our guides in a way to help us get into these questions. We're so honored to have you here this evening. And to have Ron Starbuck, uh, who I'll say a little bit more, who really was kind of the brainstorming, the genesis of why we're here tonight. So Ron, thank you very much. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is a special welcome to Gertrude Barnstone. Um, we're just so grateful to have you here. One thing I'm just so aware of this place called the Rothko Chapel is that it is a gathering point. It's a place for reunions. It's a place that reminds us all the time that for a place like this to happen, it takes a family, it takes a community at the beginning, at the inception to where we are today. I mean, we stand really, as they say, on the shoulders of giants. Those that had the vision, and we're able to take what was in concept and put it into reality. 
Uh, Howard Barnstone was one such person. Uh, we wouldn't be here without Howard's gifts, talents, and commitment. And so Gertrude, thank you for being here and the rest of the Barnstone family. Again, thank you so much for being here this evening. I also want to thank some very important people that helped and institutions that helped us be here tonight. Our underwriters are two organizations, Poet and, Poets and Writers and St. Julian Press. Uh, both of these institutions need to be really applauded for their commitments in helping to uh, keep alive the creative process, particularly to support writers, to find a place to publish writing, uh, and to encourage and support those who have uh, that kind of artistic draw and commitment. So let us lift up poets and writers and St. Julian Press for their commitments and support for this evening. Thank you so much. And I'm also reminded every day of the really talented people that I get to work with. I want to say thanks to our program committee that helps to shape the work that we do year after year after year and my colleague, Ashley Clemmer, who is the Director of Public Programs and Community Engagement. Thanks for your hard work, too. Thank you. Now, indeed, it's my pleasure this evening to present our moderator, although I think maybe Chief Conversationalist might actually be a much more uh, evocative and appropriate title for this evening, uh, Ron Staubrock. I uh, got to know Ron really through this, but he's no uh, stranger to the chapel. Just a little bit about Ron. Ron is the publisher CEO of St. Julian Press. He's an Episcopalian and the author of There is Something About Being an Episcopalian, When Angels Are Born and Wheels Turning Inward, three rich collections of poetry following a poet's mythic and spiritual journey that crosses easily into the paths of many contemplative traditions. He has been deeply engaged in an interfaith Buddhist-Christian dialogue for many years and holds a lifelong interest in literature, poetry, Christian mysticism, comparative religion, theology, and various forms of contemplative practice. He has been a contributing writer for uh, Parabola Magazine, Parabola Magazine, and has had poems and essays published in numerous publications. It's an honor tonight to have another kindred spirit amongst us Ron Starbuck, who will introduce our program and our speakers this evening. Ron, thank you. Good evening. Thank you for joining us and to the Rothko Chapel for hosting and sponsoring this event in partnership with St. Julian Press. My wife and I are longtime Houstonians, spanning several decades, adopting Houston as our hometown, something we share in common with many other immigrants and refugees and people from other parts of America. The Rothko Chapel, this sacred space open to all, inspiring people to action through art and contemplation, is an artistic and visionary legacy left in our care by many. Dominique and John Dimenel, Mark Rothko, his children, Christopher and Kate, Howard Barnstone, who we celebrate tonight, and other creative and caring people who embrace the same vision. David, Ashley, Kelly, the whole team here have been absolutely wonderful. 
a great deal of generosity, love, time, and hard work have gone into this moment. Aliki, Tony, Willis, welcome to Houston. And to the Rothko Chapel and other members of the Barnstone family are here as well, as you heard earlier. And your presence is a blessing. Willis, this is twice true for you because you have brought us the gift of new stories and knowledge, stories which are being added to the history and the wholeness, the gestalt of this sacred space. Thank you, Willis, for sharing your memories. They too are a blessing. Tonight is a singular, unique event. Dedicated to Howard Barnstone and his whole family and to his legacy and to humanity. Give us a minute here. So tonight is a singular, unique event dedicated to Howard Barnstone and his whole family, to his legacy, and to humanity. I'd also like to welcome Max Dyer, our cellist, educated at the University of Houston in Rice, Rice's Shepherd School of Music. Max has performed with leading art organizations all over Houston, and you can tell by the way he plays. The great American poet and ninth librarian of Congress, Archibald MacLeish, wrote these verses in his seventh book of poetry, The Hamlet of A. MacLeish. We have learned the answers, all the answers. It is the question that we do not know. We are not wise. Our wish this evening is to offer an encounter with the mystery of life through art, music, and poetry within each evocative Rothko painting, each musical note, each word and verse, and in the silent open spaces between out of which the possibilities of all things arise. And we ask that the memories of Howard and Mark and those who have come before be a blessing to us tonight as well. Our desire is to lift and shift you away from ordinary time into an extraordinary experience found now beyond what is known towards the infinite and eternal. For you to discover the question and the answers dwelling within, arising within us together and certainly within this sacred space, to seek something more, a sense of peace, an inspiration, a provocation, a provocation even that will invoke and compel a creative, compassionate, loving, empathic response towards life and one another, for humanity as a whole. As artists, we speak in the tongues of women, men and angels, and do so with great love, 
what an artist shares, the truth spoken out loud, unveiled, revealed, enlightened, arises from the deepest sources of the human psychic, the inner connecting spirit. Through the voices of love, where those who abide in love live in the divine mystery, a mystery we cannot always name or even remember, but know and are known by, a word hidden in our subtle memory. We speak in our own angelic tongue, and in doing so, invoke a remembrance, and something more, I believe, something more. Listen, please, listen. Advent. Some nights sleep walks across the lake and lays its peaceful palms on the eyes of others. Rest, rest. I'm left like Eve after she ate the seedless fruit, knowing what she should not know, hearing God walking with wind in the first garden. Here, the winter wind carries the voices of my beloved dead from the other shore, murmuring among themselves, and sometimes even humming and caroling grow nearer. And I turn on all the lights so I won't see their faces gathering hope at the windows. Sometimes the urge to live. Sometimes the urge to live seems like a crime, as if my absence would save a family from a bomb, or keep their tiled roof intact, or the stucco from cracking and the cinder block walls from smashing into ash and dust. Under their vulnerable roof, a mother holds a spoon at her toddler's lip, and a lithe teenage boy sways in the corner of a room to mu music only he can hear. He's a nimble dancer, spinning a loose-limbed dream partner, his muscles too sinuous, his dark hairline too even, his curls too tight for blood to mat and tangle. The grandmother finishes mending, sticks her needle in a red pincushion, 
Aren't you hungry? It's time to eat. We all want to feed our kids, sit across the table watching their gestures as they talk and handle silverware, holding an instant safe in memory, something private and unspoken that won't be etched on a plaque in a future decade with words like martyrs and dates and numbers dead. Name change. It was my grandfather's idea to change the family name from Bornstein, meaning amber or burning stone in German, to Barnstone, also meaning amber. In 1912, he, his father, stepmother, and all his siblings stood before a judge in Auburn, Maine and anglicized the vowels within their names' consonants to conceal being Jews within their souls and behind the walls of home, shades drawn to hide Shabbat candlelight. The gem's classical name was Electron, beaming sun, yet the Heliad's grief made them poplars and their tears golden amber. Two centuries before, the Emperor Joseph II decreed that all Jews immediately abandon Hebrew names and adopt a constant German surname, tax them, and keep track of them like the rest of Christendom, except keep the Jews humble. No Jew may take the surname of a noble or renowned family. No Jew may keep a name if someone complains it was his. All circumcision books and all birth books will be in German forever and ever. The Jews will be registered just as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, city of David, where Joseph and Mary traveled to sign the census decreed by Caesar Augustus. Did the ancestors know the parallel register to be taxed and rounded up later when they chose lovely names, apple or pear tree, rose, gold leaf, green field, or blooming valley? My jeweler Zeta was a great magician with diamonds, so I'm told. What if in 1788 our ancestors had been able to afford diamond, the hardest stone, dispersing spectral color. Would my grandfather have heard the brilliant name as Jewish? And would he have chosen for us instead Davies Day or even Plain Smith? Every time I look at my left hand, I behold the ring he gave my grandmother a platinum setting shaping a sun. The diamond conceals fire within until awakened by rays, it bursts into rainbows and stars scattered on the walls all around me. The covenant with Noah, God will never annihilate us again.
zero at the bone. And now she takes her chance and blows like wind out through the door she's ripped out of his life. And now his spirit clamps around the wound and seizes up like flesh around a knife. And now he feels an anger that could crush the bones of planets, hates his worried face, his roll of fat, the strands of hair his brush picks from his scalp. And now she's gone. No force can fetch her back like Lazarus from death. She's in the undiscovered country where she's free of him. And now there's only love to love, invisible as God, as breath siphoning from a hole. What's left of her for him? An absence in which to believe. My version of our name can change poem. Parable of the Jew without a name. The epigraph comes from uh, Mary Anton, The Promised Land, 1912. With our despised immigrant clothing, we shed also our impossible Hebrew names. My great uncle Vincent, son of the Milk Street tailor, threw some fairy dust into the air and changed, making it easy for me to go to the prom, to grow up in Indiana and bite my tongue when a hick would cuss at the bastard who tried to Jew me down for the price of homegrown pot. Like wool pants for blue jeans, Moisha, Shmuel, and Lazar traded in their names and in exchange were changed from cabbage eaters into Americans. And why not? I never was a pumpkin, cries the carriage. I never was a pauper, cries the prince. In this fairy tale, all the steins turn to stones. Straw turns to gold, stars warp into crosses, and the pauper trades up and leaves the trades to the star-crossed Jews. I'm a lousy Jew, ignorant of nearly everything, except that in another time the Klan would lynch me, the Nazis flay me into yellow lampshades, my white hide hides me, my baseball cap keeps greasy ash out of my hair. And I'm glad for my nice name. Who needs a life so grim? In the shtetl, the old Jews would change their names. So the angel of death flying on black crepe wings above the town, fatal list in hand, would pass over them. But not the ones who stayed behind and kept their names, the Edelsteins, Eisensteins, or the one I'll never know, some cousin twice removed, born in Poland, some Morris Bernstein, no way to gather smoke out of the sky and give him flesh again. I imagine him with eyes like mine, intent and studious, staring at the rusted cattle car, cattle car wall in the rattling stink of packed bodies, trying not to breathe. He'll get that wish soon enough. Slender, bookish children aren't good workers, and it's too much trouble to take away their names and write numbers in their skin. They're gassed like fleas. I'm a lousy Jew, but I'd like to disturb the grass. 
Unearth him from the crowded grave and let his damp fingers write this story while his eyes like clouded marble roll. I'd like to roll the story back to the dead boy swaying in the train to see him there imagining the sky he hasn't seen for days, the white winter sky, like a page he could write on again and again, practicing his name. The Book of Nature. There's a way that the environment is more than our environs. It's a kind of knowledge of how all things find a marriage just by being the way they're meant. Perhaps we are meant to try to understand and fail the way that seagrass flowers drift in meadows underwater and yet lift up towards some unknown surface with green hands and try and fail to grasp the wavering ball of sun that sends bright splinters through the sea. And yet, when starlight fills Yosemite like dreams, then we might understand this call. Put down iPhones, turn off HBO, and find the hidden meadow, secret cove, to turn back from the world we think we know and enter the ecology of love. Thank you, friends, all friends, for coming here. Gaslamp, 1893. In brownstone Boston, down on old Milk Street, up two gray flights near the gas lamp, the tailor waits glumly for the midwife. August heat has worn the woman out. Amid the squalor, she looks around the bed, clutching a cape she brought from London as a child. It's, it's dawn and dirty. The dark tailor wants to escape to his cramped shop. The woman's sheets are drawn below her waist. She isn't hollering now. Her eyes are dark and still, blood on her thumbs. Her name is Basha. No, I'm guessing. How untold am I to know? Hot day has worn into the room. The midwife finally comes. Grandmother bleeds to death. My father's born. 1939. In 1939, Antonio Machado dies in Collioure, France. Franco drives democracy out of Spain, and World War II begins. I take the elevator ride upstairs to a photo pose with Babe Ruth, an orphan, who next day goes to the World's Fair 
to hand out big diplomas to Sandlot orphans. I am a fan out in Yankee State, Yankee bleachers with my gooey hot dog. I see Garrick. He doesn't speak to Babe who banged his wife. Lou nails balls, shoving them into his mitt, snares the impossible. The Babe calls everyone, hi, young champ. This year, the Germans roll through Poland, killing any Jew they can f- drag out of basements with a devil's skill for murder. Good year for me would become the New York Boy Scout diving champion. The pool up at Columbia stinks with chlorine, foul steam. The jewel of my life comes when I swim out of the crammed tank to cheers and the gold medal, first and last time in my life. My dad and I haunt the Met. We lapse in reverie before Rembrandt's Soon will come bad and good years since my dad has split. He writes in Mama Peach and I, a great dancing team. We see Cary Grant in Gunga Din and Errol Flynn in Dodge City and Frank Sinatra joins Tommy Dorsey's band. In 1939, how happy we can be. Baruch Spinoza, my favorite philosopher. Baruch Spinoza, embracing space. Willis, that's me. Baruch Spinoza always has it right. There's no divinity above the clouds or devil in mid-earth below our sight. Those Bible miracles he drapes and shrouds, nature or God. They're one reality. Baruch sees all things of the world divine, from air and stars to generosity and love. Riches he gives away. He's fine with poverty and friends, a pipe, a beer, and grinding lenses, although glass dust brings him early death. The pallid Jew in small Latin script polishes the wonder, cheer, and mathematics of the mind. Thought wings him through the night. He loves the tiny all. Right after World War II, I went to Auschwitz. Beatles in Auschwitz-Birkenau 1960. Willis Barnstone, that's me. I take the train to Auschwitz from the white crack off of Mongols and Copernicus to the extermination camp and night of nights for souls herded by brown shirt soulless. Soon after the war, the train's almost empty. I step on the rust platform where SS Schutzstaffel Dr. Josef Mengele for lined up Jews chose barracks or gas chamber. Baby shoes, ovens, gallows for the unruly. The Arbeit macht frei gate. I leave the towering smokestacks 
trudge back to the platform, truly gruesome, bored, stunned by time. A workman drops a coin in the jukebox just above us. Sergeant Pepper's lonely heart club band. The beat's so strong, we tap our feet and kiss the poisoned air with all you need is love. The 167th Psalm of Elvis. <laughs> Blessed are the marble breasts of Venus, those ancient miracles, for they are upright and milk white, and they point above the heads of the crowd in the casino. Blessed are the crowds that play and whose reflections sway in the polish of her eggshell eyes, for they circle like birds around the games, and they are beautiful and helpless. Bless the fast glances that handle the waitress. Bless her miniskirt toga and the flame gold scotch. And bless the gamblers who gaze at the stage. Remember also the dancer, and remember her dance, her long neck arched like a wild white goose, the tassels on her nipples that shoot like sparks, and bless the legs and bless the breasts, for they are fruit and honey, and they are generous to the eyes. Have mercy on my wallet, the dollars I punch into the slot, and grace the wheels swapping clubs and hearts. Mercy on me too, as I stumble as if in a hashish haze, watching the reels spin away, for I am a blown fuse and I need someone to bless me before it's too late. <laughs> Honor the chance in a million, the slot machine jolting, the yellow light flashing. Honor the voice that calls jackpot and the coins that crush into the brush steel tray. For there is a time for winning and a time for losing 
And if you cast your bread upon the waters, you will find it again after many days. Pity the crowd around the blessed winner, all patting his back as if it rubs off this juice, this force, this whatever that might save them from their own cursed luck. And pity the poor winner whose hand claws back into his bucket of coins and who cannot walk away because he'd do anything for the feeling he had when the great pattern rose from the chaos of cherries and lemons and diamonds and stars. And he knew for that moment he was blessed. My Spinoza poem, this is called The Empty Apartment. One tiny note, California is a street in Santa Monica, not the state. The empty apartment. Sometimes I think that people are the fingers of God, like the blind ocean touching land. And life's a braille that I won't understand if I'm not touching you. And we're not singers kissing a song out of our mouths in bed. Tonight, I fumble keys in darkness by my door and try to feel my way inside to cook alone and watch TV. Instead, I walk down California to the seething blackness out there beyond the glowing beach and stand for a long time listening to each heave, the ocean like the planet breathing. It's done with raging, windily and wild. Tonight, it whispers, shush. It whispers, child. Beast in the apartment. I found the lion in my living room, curled on the carpet, licking his red claws. And he looked up, haloed with fur, a bloom of blood around his smile, and yawned his jaws so wide, I saw between his great black lips my world in all its flaming symmetry, the corona of cities, the people tithing to warships that rip the blue sky fabric of the sea, falling towers and those trapped underneath, the trillion suns like sparkles on his tongue, each planet crushed like a mint between his teeth. I won't say this was a dream, how could it be? I felt the hot rubber of his lips, the tongue's wet slubber, the sirocco of his breath steaming my face as I gripped those jaws and wrestled in a whirl with the dumb beast. I won't claim This was a vision. It was the lion for real this time, the beast whose hunched muscle I'd always sensed in the dark apartment, whom I'd known only by the long scribbles of yellow hair left on the couch, and the shadow paws that push me down into the bed at night. Now, here he was, upright beast playing claw piano on my back, and letting out a bomb blast roar as we knocked lamps to the floor and danced. At last, he rolled on his side 
and gazed from carnivorous amber eyes as if to say, stroke me, I won't attack. Simba, I said, and lost my hands inside the nimbus of his mane, and then I felt my way down to his haunches, combed his hide, the reddened prairie of his weak grass pelt, until it seemed it was my own body streaking like yellow lightning across the veldt, and I felt the slender springbok neck between my teeth pulsing and bellowed with all the joyous pain of being soiled with lion funk, rank and dancing, a 50-year-old man in a lion suit. I won't say this is true, but it's true when I come home. The frizzy neighborly lap cats leave off from chasing squirrels, snuffle up to me like kittens, and though this lion with sinews that stretch like symbols into the infinite and the carnal, will curl up and go to sleep again. We'll go back to being a paper lion, unreal but leaving remembrances coiled yellow on my carpets. I still feel his oven breath, the arc lamps of his eyes, and feel the great paw at night pushing me down into the shadow cave where the rest of myself breathes asleep, never to be known, never to be born for real. <clears throat> Federico García Lorca was probably the best known dramatist and poet when he was executed in, in 1936, the beginning of the Civil War. Lorca at the Well of Black Waters, 1898-1936. In gay April, Federico left Holy Week for his dark love. He wed grasshoppers on the orange tree sun soul and earth. As a memento, he put his spearmint guitar in a weathercock spinning eternally over the stallion sea. In grave July, Generals Mola and Franco crossed from Spanish Morocco with bomb and cross, bulls of blood and death, lampposts froze in Granada, Lorca got off a train, hid in a friend's attic. The fascia gale found him. He was handcuffed to two anarchist bullfighters and a blind schoolteacher. Even Defaya, Manuel Defaya, couldn't save him. Lorca took extra bullets in the ass for being a mariposa butterfly, give him more coffee, code for lead. At Fuente Grande, before dawn, before olive trees, not by his piano, not in his best cafe, Lorca's blood became ink, our ink in books 
and sounded in eyes on stage. At five in the black morning, Federico, at exactly five in August 1936, at five on the dot in the heart of the ignominious morning, Granada's poet left the black moon under his olive trees by the small cemetery's execution wall. Sighs rebound between snow mountains of the Sierra before aura dew or sun breeze can clean up the blood. A small bird of paper in the lungs declares that the hour of kisses has not arrived. This is a change in pace. Daybreak with Jean-Louis Kerouac. Never expected Jack to show. I'm eating supper with Gregory Corso in a lonely blue Italian joint at New Haven. He's coming up alone to read his poems at Wesleyan. Bragging about Jack, Greg gets mournful as if Kerouac had spun off the planet. I say, look, Jack's not a corpse. He's alive, knocking it out. What kind of shit? Corso, the straight pin of the gang, lets me have it. Ginsburg sleeps with everyone. Alan, poor Alan, he's just a whore. I'm the only straight dude who's ever slept with Jack O'Lantern. We're tight. Corso's proud of being Top Gun with Kerouac. Jack stinks out loud with whiskey, but off booze, he's really low-key, gentle. He's a timid man. On the weekend, Greg shows. He's come up from the city with a tired, wobbling bum, wearing a black, ratty raincoat, hugging his ankles, a black fedora and shades. Hey, Kerouac, you gotta be kidding. Drunk as a hog, his feet made of cotton. Jack's smiling a lot. I ferry him to Olin Library and present him to Professor Green, expert in Christmas carols. Jack asks Green, what are you teaching, sir? Shakespeare, responds the patrician teacher. Do you like Shakespeare, says Jack. I love Shakespeare, states the professor. Overjoyed, Jack shouts, I love Shakespeare too. And he grabs his new friend's cheeks and slaps a wild kiss on his lips. I've read your books, says Green. I like them. Where can I take you? The scholars skip off. In the evening, Corso stuns me. Are those tramps going to beat me up? You're crazy. But Corso won't read his poems. He raves about his hero, William Burroughs, whispers a chapter from Naked Lunch, and we're transported to jungle rapture and shots of heroin burrows sticks in the ass of a Brazilian boy. After a discourse on love, Greg and the gang of pals Jack came up with from New York jam into a side room, and Jack is sober 
and describes his dawn climb up Mount Tamopais, north of the Golden Gate. Jack is impassioned. I climbed Tamopais. I got to the top and beheld daybreak. I saw Satori. You saw bullshit, Corso throws in. I saw bullshit, Jack confesses. He surrenders. A buddy knows I'm nuts about everything Greek and puts on an LP of Hasapiko from Asia Minor Dens. Jack tells me, let's dance. We squat, arms locked, and we're doing the butcher's dance, strict and low, until Zen daybreak. God, they made me, gave me a white hippie beard, and my throat sang a loud cuckoo and the godly nightingale, and they heard. I was a star in the morning of their book, a fly at noon, a beast in their chest, angel in their ribs, a purple hat. I was king, sun, frog, a lily that lived in the winter. They wouldn't let me die amid the murder from the clocks. I was a bell, a cowbell, and clavier. At dawn, my whole light woke the bubble of the earth, burned its edge, blew me inside. They made me and unmade me. My best friends left. I hang around the old neighborhood, lonely man, lonely man behind the times. My good friends suffer for truth. I was their face, their joyful lie. They need me. I make their day ridiculous and cast them alone in the dark. I was a morning star. Now I'm nothing. Zero. They've got nothing like me. Before I left, I made light. That's you. This poem has an epigraph from the Iliad. Busy yourself with your daily duties, your loom, your distaff, for war is man's matter. A little more mindful. If I could be a little more mindful, groom my dog's fur, remember to shelve my books, shut the closet and cabinet doors, hide away my mess of clothes and dishes, and graciously address every annoyance, or worse than annoyance. Perhaps my sandals would glide up marble steps, and I'd find myself idle, holding my peace, my desperate thoughts left to themselves at the bottom of the hill, while I turn over in my palm some stones that hold the spirits of those who do not cry out praise for a king riding a donkey, clothed in garments his mother wove, her design covering his flesh from birth 
until he hugged his shroud on a road strewn with rags and palms and wept over the city. If only you knew on this day those things creating peace. Centuries before his word, their spirits dwell in rubble, for countless wars knock stone from stone. They perished so long ago, their wanderings and homes are the work of archaeology. Their pots are dust, the Athenian shopkeepers sweep away each morning along with the art of their looms, the saffron and hyacinth yarns spun for the owl, chariot, and winged horses on Athena's raiment, the story cloths on which the fates dance and lament and teach child bearers to weave defiance in a double purple web. Their textile and text are incomprehensible to men. Soldiers cannot divide the seamless robe passed from mother to daughter, mystery in a single thread. Isis in Missouri. My brown-skinned Isis listens to the prayers of slaves and artisans. Sunday morning, I visit my friends in the village of Rocheport. Kent's cooked Egyptian lentils and roasted tomatoes with eggs rolled in dukkah he's made by grinding hazelnuts, sea salt flakes, coriander, cumin, and nigella seeds. I bow my head over the bowl of aromas, rising delectable enough for goddesses and gods who are nourished, smelling the food we humans eat. All day, Isis's name is on my tongue, a grain of fennel sweetening my breath when I speak. Isis riding the airways. Isis is with us as we wander the Katy Trail where the old train tracks used to run border to border, sometimes along the big muddy river and sometimes across the wide prairies where once only herds of hoofed creatures trampled the grasses and wildflowers until big cats and wolves took them down the same way as somewhere in Africa. Now the wild animals and the savannas are fenced in. The weeping willow is cascading green light sparkling Isis's name without fear. The air is perfect and smooths our skin like water and everyone on the path smiles with peace to be walking with family or biking through the tunnel into radiant trees. All day long, Isis appears, mother with child, icon passed generation to generation, faith to faith. Across the wetlands, a huge turtle warms its shell, perched on a log, attended by dragonflies hovering, reflecting blues and greens, sky and water. We stopped to chat with the owners of an outdoor pizzeria and bakery. 
Their daughter sits on a wrought iron throne, nursing her baby beneath the canopy of a wild mulberry. Sparrows eat crumbs at our feet. The afternoon sun disk is caught in a sycamore, two white branches sticking out like cow's horns and vultures above Monito Creek. She does not f- hide her full breast as the group of us talk about books and food, the decline of the bees and the monarchs. We do not take God the Mother's name in vain to mean terror. We do not seek to degrade and destroy her brown skin. Life, this poem is called In Our Life Watch. There's a pun on watch and watch. In our life watch, we are down to five or six Pierre Grange watches, a jeweler's box of soft Swiss straps, and a few precious stones we are selling off to pay the Greystone Hotel bill and meals. Dad and I leave early each morning on our rounds in the labyrinths of narrow jewelry stores downtown. How will we eat after our loot is gone? No worry, some way. I love the summer in New York, best in my life. Not Camp Moden in Maine with its daybreak lake and canoe trips 
but real city watch straps with grown-up men we waylay and haggle with. On Sunday, we prowl to Coney Island or the World's Fair. Dad was 12 when he left home and school. I'll soon be 12, and I've got my father as my closest pal. We celebrate each sale, each trade. One afternoon, with a twinkle, he slaps down 300 bucks for a diamond, most of what we have to live on. Next day, sells it for a thousand. He finds the way. These things get so good, we spend our Sundays watching Gehrig and DiMaggio knocking leather into the bleaches or Pee Wee Reese catching the impossible. We miss the series when Dad goes west, but I grab wartime trains to meet him on our swinging life watch through Red Mountain states and Mexico adventures. In Mexico City, he marries a child bride, and I'm living with Spanish children from the Civil War in a barred-in orphanage. I share a room on the roof. Then, too soon, Dad and I talk all night in our New York hotel. Lying on narrow beds, we conjure up Rembrandt's beggar in a bed. Nobleman, baggy nobleman's dress. How the Swedish angel wrestler hugs a foe till he drops inert. Then the hill of debts. Am I my father tonight? In the morning, I leave for Maine. He's on a plane to Mexico where he must pawn his soul for silver. <clears throat> no luck. He flies to Colorado, plays the last card at a Denver bank, loses Van Gogh's face against the wall. He climbs high to the roof where he folds his coat, places it on a stone bench near the ledge, his hat on top. He steps over the low railing, leaps, and floats in blind sorrow out into May sun. Dad's fallen again, but we can't wake early and look up a small jewelry shop to peddle our wares and hearts, our soft Swiss straps, or cold diamond, since death at last has cleaned us out. Different tone. Albert Einstein, wayfarer from Ulm and Bern to Princeton. Einstein thought his biggest blunder was his dark energy theory. No worry. Why care? He was right. Wrong was the academic buzz. God plays no dice with us. Nature is fair. Look at his giggling face and haystack hair. Besides, who cannot love Einstein? With just a pencil he wrote E equals MC squared. His gravity allowed light, no straight line. 
He waited a century till the Swiss behemoth beast with Jobian bones of brass and iron smashed a Higgs boson and proved his sky. His cosmic computer was a fiery moth. And while Albert played a hot violin, his universe expanded endless like a sigh. Besides, who cannot love Einstein? Look at his giggling face and haystack hair. The accident of being. The accident of being a single, one-time being is the infinite miracle of birth and death. Happens under the sun, Ecclesiastes notes. Happens to all who were and will be. I wake and am. I'm spellbound that I am and you are. I am a stranger in a strange land. Each lamb, pebble, and tiger is unique. La Rue du Matin in Paris echoes Moses wandering his desert as a stranger. He is person and people lost who must pass to inner recognition. Strange to be. The sport of metaphysics keeps me clean. In Wittgenstein's silence, the mind's eye is seen. I have one life and will not understand why I, a cheerful being, am not sad. How long will I be me? I've worked in fun and have no time for death. Being is my pill, the accident of being a single, one-time being is the infinite miracle. Pathos now, as one among billions of temporal beings, I am spoiled. Make me Job or Panhandler. Toss me like bad onions down the sink. If I am still alive, I won't sob. My birth and death happens under the sun, Ecclesiastes notes, happens to all. The accident of being one single, one-time being is the infinite miracle. This is a year in Argentina during the Dirty War. I was very close to Borges for 18 years. At the St. James Cafe in dirty war mornings, often in Buenos Aires during the dirty war, I am translating sonnets of Jorge Luis Borges, who has an apartment on La Calle Maipú, right across the street. Blind, he no longer sees the page, but in the unanimous night, he repeats his own lines with a sonority of calm thunder. Normally, we walked to the St. James Cafe on Corrientes to have our breakfast. 
his place for a chat about the enigma of Alice's first word on ascending from the rabbit hole into which she had tumbled and then played croquet with the flamingo or how his almost fatal fall on the circular stairway in his building led him to his first story. On these long mornings, we sit with coffee and cornflakes where the great mirrors show his white collar, his head, and always gazing disfigured eyes and his black and impeccable suit. This one has a um, epigraph. The neutrino is the most tiny quantity of reality ever imagined by a human being. The title is Parable of the South Pole Buddha. A physicist is stuck in a bunker at the South Pole, freezing his burrito off and trying to detect the rare light given off by one in six billion neutrinos streaking through the glacial ice. And it turns out, he's a guy I like talking poetry with sometimes. And before he zooms to the white continent, he tries to explain neutrinos to me like a priest describing the progress of the spirit to a child. No, they're not that three-piece punk band from Philadelphia, making dancers oscillate in clubs, then fall into each other like so much dark matter. Like most of us, they have a mean life and a half-life. Like most of us, they decay too fast. But here's the wonder. These particles are so tiny, so unaffected, they shoot right through the planet and through us without so much as setting an electron quivering like a dragonfly's wing. I wish I could do that. Instead of lying in bed, feeling gravity gloomy to the indentation in the mattress, wish I could jet right through the world like cosmic rain, a flight of neutrinos shaped like a poet and riding on the magic carpet of a weightless bed. No tax forms, no lawyers, no dentists to drill through the crown to the rotten murder the root. Just stick my face in the pillow and jellyfish through. I try to let go of my body, to drop without a parachute, a little Buddha, neither hot nor cold. But I can't lift off like my friend who's gone to glacial nowhere and who sets up his machines while the unseen wind wishes by into the heart of cold, thinking he can measure the invisible, thinking he might actually understand what distinguishes us from nothing. The Californian Book of the Dead. I'm scared. So I'm writing this Book of the Dead, a last testament like James Kidd 
Arizona prospector mining the edge of superstition wilderness may be murdered in Haunted Canyon for his gold, whose will left his half million to research the spirit because I think in time we will photograph the soul leaving the human at death. Perhaps we will, or perhaps there's no will left when the body sleepless settles and the mind breaches and the last neurons flaring in a final visionary chain try to understand the storm wind ripping us from our bodies. The million tiny Buddhas crawling down the eyelids, white Buddhas, red Buddhas, blue and yellow. The teenager daydreams superpowers, walking invisible into the girls' locker room in bank vaults, a super punch that sends the football jock sprawling, but doesn't dream of the body's simplest power, the power to stop. The body has its own will, and so I leave this testament. Crack wide the doors of the sky. Let my spirit leap into heaven like a grasshopper. Let me float among the stars and eat the gods. And when I stand before the lords of death, I'll testify that I leapt, I leapt, I leapt from the pit of dreams each morning and tried to live my life awake. That I gave $20 to the woman by the freeway entrance with the homeless and humiliated sign while the red truck honked behind me. That I bowed my head and dug with my tongue between my lover's legs that I mined that cave and the, and the gold for me was the pleasure she felt. But I did not sleep with that woman at the French bistro who was so bored of her husband and her little girls. I lived the best I could. And if the mind breaks down in death and the last neuron fires in darkness like a sun snuffed out in a dying galaxy, and if I wander for a while alone and find no God, no rat, no earthworm, no butterfly of the spirit realm, then let this be my superpower. The ability to speak without breath, to write without fingers, to streak like a meteorite across a black screen and to go on and on without will or consciousness, just these dead words dancing before your eyes, a toy skeleton on a string. This poem is called Die, like death die. <laughs> One day, your toe fell off tiniest toe on the right foot. My toe, my toe, you mourned, my favorite toe. Your thumbs were next to go, some hair, your nose, and you were so deformed, you walked through crowds and people turned in fear. And at the bar, in a red booth, a tooth dropped in your glass. And when you rose, an ear dropped on the naga hide. And then, in truth, the loss accelerated. Biceps, legs, your black-lashed eyes, your pale flesh lips, your head. Your family came and gathered up the dregs. And singing sadly for the you that's dead, 
They planted you in the black, fertile earth. You float there in that womb and wait for birth. Day breaks on Andros, 1944. When all at once dogs bark from the cobblestone labyrinth and my nightmare and donkeys clop more burdened than ever and the roosters panic with church bells, footsteps and a screaming lamb, I think they know who I am and they'll take me away. At last, they've identified me, however narrowly. Cerberus howls from his unwanted welcome. The doves grunt with the weary souls in the underworld. Then, just as suddenly I wake, a taste on my tongue like something spoiled. The red hibiscus flowering outside the window spins a second among sun rays, then stops. A gust of wind. I'm on the island, safe for now. I reach for my glasses on the nightstand, put them on, and the room's colors shift into focus. Then I turn my head slowly on the pillow, almost afraid to reassure myself. My daughter is asleep. There, on the small bed next to mine, her lips moving a little, her braid coiled along her neck, her hand resting on the chest of her doll. I remember it is Easter Sunday, and the scream I heard was the lamb carried off to be slaughtered. Today, I will celebrate, too, posing as a Christian, and I will call out with the rest, Christos, Anesti, Christ has risen. We've been passed over. I allow sleep to lay its heavy body on mine, and I sink beneath it for a few more hours, still and dreamless. Her Scarlet Letters. Since the day on the scaffold, I have refused to utter a word that might answer which father made my daughter's body. I clothe her with the fiery ink from my needle. She wears the scripture of my love, the threads I've wrought of rubies and poppies, a raspberry-stained tongue, the apple heart. There on her skirts is crimson Eden, my silence embellished in vermilion, my carmine chant. She is my pearl, my scarlet feathered bird, she whom the sun flushes with volts of light, girl made by wildness whom the wilderness loves. The morning dove lulls her with its three-note song, the squirrel gossips from its branch, the fox and wolf find the dog within them, 
lie down for her on a rug woven of moss and leaves. She is asylum from the congregation. She, the genesis of my exile. I take her hand and feel paradise in her warm palm, though I know the doctrine too well. The flesh is vanity and dust. And now, because she will not say her father in heaven made her, the dark-minded men of God want to take her from me, though she exposed my wayward love. She stands before them in the light, the twin of my defiance. I see the window secretly draw a line between her and the gloomy magistrates. Her guilty and obscured father looks on. I open my lips. Speak for me. At last I move him to defend the child born of our consecration. At last my words embroider the air, disclosing nothing to the men clothed in black. Eat God. Sunday mornings I eat God. The rest of the week too I eat God. October in the Midwest is apple season and each bite announces God on the roof of my mouth. Seraphim whispers the crisp fruit and I chew and chew invites the pun and juice and Chu invites the rhyme and juice, the pun. I like juice, don't you? <laughs> Sunday mornings, I rise with the flock and, hing, and sing hymns to a Jew and bow to a tree and hold up out my cupped hands for a bit of unleavened bread from heaven. The rest of the week, I hear the rabbi say the same thing he said when last we supped, do this for the remembrance of me. I take a breath and eat the whole sky and taste his atoms on my tongue as commanded. Sunday mornings, the people take in God's gifts. Oh, the body, the body is thin, thin as a wafer. We get a little wine too, costly as blood. The brow upon whom God laid his oiled thumb is the Jews, his skin scented with olive and balsam, saved, saved, they say, just to heal me. The rest of the week, the Jew hangs around reminding me, eat God. I eat an apple which passes understanding, and he hovers at my shoulder out of eyeshot and doesn't complain about the hole in his side. Peace be with you, the rabbi says, and also with you. Eat God, I do thank you. Sunday morning, his wine stings my throat when I speak. An archangel's wing breaks from a cloud and shrinks into heaven. The rest of the week, he says, eat, eat, eat and proves he's a Jew or a Greek. Sunday mornings, his atoms tingle my skin. 
The rest of the week, the gashes on his palms and feet don't belong to him, but to me and the world. Still, they hurt him. That Jew dwells among us, something like that. Sunday mornings, I eat God. The rest of the week, I dwell on God. Sunday mornings, I dwell on earth. The rest of the week, I wash down God with a little wine, spirit in the blood, a spill on a linen napkin. In an enigmatic mirror, I see the Jew face to face. I can't wipe the stain from my lips. Sonnet for Monica A. Hand, 1953-2016. You love sonnets. I mean, you loved sonnets. If I call you, if I write you in form, you'll come back. We'll have coffee at the fretboard. You'll wear the orange hat I knit push raw nuts and poems across the table. You're gone. The soul is irrational. You're adored, not dead. Speak your mind, you smile, leaning toward me. I may argue, but want your honest comments. You give me a book that you Coptic stitched, a shelf of handmade books attest to work written and thick pages you left unfinished. I painted dark-skinned Astarte, a birthday gift I still plan to give you. Though there's no future, we'll sit together on earth. a bit over and um, we want to do the reception we want be able we want people to be able to get some books um, and to say hi to the poets I'm going to ask David to come up and say a few closing words 
And if you have questions for anyone, myself included, um, just catch us right afterwards, okay? Thank you. So on a night like tonight, I just had this image of this altar. And on this altar tonight were all these gifts just starting to be piled up. And this altar started to move out and move out and move beyond the walls of this wonderful sanctuary. We have been gifted and we thank you so much because we get to take a little bit of all of it. So thank you all for being here. We can't, I don't know how we can express it except we can do it the old fashioned way. Thank you. thank all of you for coming tonight. Uh, your presence gifts us also, and we gift each other by being in community. I'll echo what uh, Ron said. Please um, enjoy. The weather's nice. It's a beautiful evening. Spend some time with each other. Uh, we're going to do a one quick photo that'll give you time to get on the plaza, get something to drink and, and a space. We need to do one quick photo together and then we'll, uh, we'll all be out. So again, thank you all for coming. Go in peace and many blessings. Thank you. I'm a writer. Writer. Oh, are you really?